0: We've all experienced injustice, but have you ever experienced what you would call a gross injustice? And looking at the passage we're going to consider tonight, I thought, this is a gross injustice. And then I thought to myself, what does the word gross mean? So I looked it up, the English word in the dictionary, and I found that it meant flagrant an extreme, and then it gave an example. You know how the dictionary gives you an example of a sentence and you use the word in a sentence? <laughs> the example was, as in a gross injustice. So apparently those two words go together more than I am aware. I think the question is, how do you handle it? We all experience injustice, but when it really gets bad, uh, and it can Uh, How do you handle it? Well, as you know, we've been studying the book of Genesis, and we're into the life of Joseph, and if there was ever a man who experienced a gross injustice, it was Joseph. He did absolutely nothing wrong, uh, except he had a dream, and in the dream he was over his 11 brothers and even the family And that, and some other things, caused jealousy. And then came the injustice. He was sold by his brothers into slavery. So he ends up uh, in prison in Egypt. And that was not the Hilton, to say the least. And then you know the story. He um, uh, ends up... uh, first of all, in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and that's what got him in prison. In prison, uh, a butler uh, promised that he would uh, uh, say something for him when he got out of prison, and he forgot. So this man has just experienced not one injustice, but one injustice after another. Uh, His brother sold him into slavery. Uh, Potiphar's wife lied about him. He gets thrown into prison. In prison, the butler who's about to be released says he would say a word for him for Pharaoh, and he forgets him. So every time this man turns around, he's been uh, treated unjustly. So how did he handle it, and what can we learn from his response to injustice? To answer that, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 42. And as you are turning, let me tell you the rest of the story up to this point. He did get out of prison and he did get elevated to what amounts to the prime minister or the vice president of the whole nation. And because he was able to interpret Pharaoh's dream, he was put in charge of all the food supply for the whole nation of Egypt. And the Lord revealed there were going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of phantom. Well, the seven years of plenty came, and because of Joseph, they stored food in reserve for the seven years of famine. And then the famine came. As we open Genesis 42, we are dealing with a man that has been dealt with very unjustly. He's experienced one injustice after another, but now he's in a place of power and he's dealing with the famine. So chapter 42, verse 1 says, Jacob, when Jacob saw there was grain in Egypt Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. Interesting scenario. They're running out of food, at least had some money. And Jacob, the father of this clan, understood that there was food to be had in Egypt. Now, there are 11 sons left. Uh, Of course, Joseph is in Egypt. And they're just sitting around looking at each other. And the father says, why are you just looking at each other? Does that not sound like something a father would say to his sons? (laughs) You're just uh, sitting there looking. "Why, Why don't you do something? How about going down to Egypt and buy some food for us? So, uh, they decided to do that. So, verse 3 says, So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Stop. How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. Twelve. How many is in Egypt? One. One. Then how many are with Jacob? Eleven. Eleven. How many decided to go to Egypt to buy grain? Uh Uh-oh, there's one missing. Why ten? Why didn't all eleven go? So if you're just reading the text, aware of what's going on, it sort of just slaps you in the face that ten went. And furthermore, look at the way verse 3 is stated. So Joseph's ten brothers It didn't say Jacob's ten sons, it said Joseph's ten brothers. In other words, the author is writing this story from the viewpoint of Joseph, and it's pointing out that it's his brothers that are coming, not just Jacob's sons. Verse 4, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. Again, notice, it does not say that Joseph did not send his son, Benjamin. It says he didn't send Joseph's brother, Benjamin. Again, indicating that the author is writing this story from the viewpoint of Joseph. Now, now we know why there's only 10 went. Jacob, the father, wanted to keep Benjamin, lest some calamity become befall him. Now, isn't that interesting? Why not one of the other ten? The implication seems to be that Joseph was his favorite, the apple of his eye, so to speak, and now, as far as he knows, Joseph is dead. So apparently he's got another favorite now, and it's Benjamin. So he's willing for ten to go, but he's going to keep Benjamin for fear that some calamity would come upon him. So the story opens with Jacob commanding the ten sons, the ten brothers of Joseph To go to Egypt to get some grain lest they starve to death now what happens next is they get to Egypt and they meet Joseph now they have not seen Joseph for a long long time one author estimates that they've not seen each other for 21 years so it's been a long time since they saw him now what follows in this passage is a confrontation. Uh, Joseph confronts them, and it gets a little complicated, so I'm going to try and simplify it by calling this round one, round two, round three, round four, round five. There are five rounds of conversation going on in verses 6 to 24. 24. So let's begin with round one in verse six. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And to Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. All right, this is round one, first part of the conversation. And uh, it's pointed out that Joseph was governor over the land, and we know from previous passages that he is in charge of everything. Everything He's in charge of all the food. He has virtually absolute power uh, in Egypt, except for Pharaoh. And it says in verse 6, he sold all of the people. So he either micromanaged the food distribution, or it, an account was given to him, but you had to go through Joseph to get some of this preciously stored food. That is the point. Now, the text says they did not recognize him. Uh, As I mentioned, it was at least 20, 21 years since they'd seen him, and they weren't expecting him to be the governor. You know? Matter of fact, (laughs) this happens to me all the time. Uh, you, You know somebody in a certain situation, and you meet them out of that situation, and you, you have to pause for a minute. Wait, 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 wait. I know that person. You ever had that happen? Oh, yeah. you, they're not in the right place. You know, I know him at church, and if I meet him at Costco, well, well I know that person. Uh, you know, you have to stop and think for a minute. So he's not where they expected him to be. So you can justify uh, them not recognizing him. But he recognized them and deliberately, it says in verse 7, spoke roughly to them. The Hebrew word translated roughly means hard, cruel, severely. He was really harsh to them. So they had no way of knowing uh, who he was, but he knew who they was. That's the first round. The second round begins in verse 9. Then Joseph remembered the dream which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You're spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants, we're not spies. So in round one, he recognizes them. In round two, he says, you're spies. Now, of course, he knows they're not, but um, he's going to give them a hard time. Um, This is a serious charge. Uh, Even in America, if you're guilty of spying, that's a capital offense. Well, you can believe it was a capital offense in ancient Egypt. So to accuse them of being spies was serious stuff. Their response is rather interesting. This is their defense. Verse 11, we are all one man's sons and are honest men. What has that got to do with anything? Well, the theory would be that if they were spies, if it was a military operation, the father wouldn't send 10 of his sons for fear that he'd lose them all. So the argument seems to be it's not reasonable that we would be spies because we're all brothers. Now, round three, verse 12. And he said to them, No, I don't buy it. You didn't convince me. But you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan, And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. And one is no more. Ooh. All right, now they are letting loose on some information that he can use against them. Who is the one that's back in the land? Benjamin. Benjamin. Who is the one that is no more? Joseph. And they're talking to him. But as far as they are concerned, he is dead. So, he does not accept their explanation. Uh, He's well aware, it's the truth, but he's not accepting it to them. All right, round three is, but he said to them, verse 12, No, you've come to see the nakedness of the land, and they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and in fact the youngest is with our father today, and the third, and, and one is no more. So again, their defense is basically the same. They just add that um, uh, there's two other brothers besides us. Now, round four, pick it up at verse 14. But Joseph said to them, "It is as I spoke to you saying, Your spies." In this manner, you should be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you should be kept in prison that the words may be tested to see whether there's any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh. Surely you are spies. And if you are spies, you are dead. So he put them all together in prison for three days. So round four, he's going to test them. He's going to put them in prison uh, for three days. Now, uh, he's really in a position to, uh, do, to put some mean hurt on them, if he so chose. But at this point, he's just not accepting uh, their explanation, and he's giving them a very hard time. So we now come to round five. It starts in verse 18 and goes all the way through verse 24. Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live. In other words, uh, do what I tell you and I won't convict you and sentence you for being spies and you will die. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be uh, uh, confined to your prison house. But you go and carry grain for the famine to your houses. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your word will be verified and you shall not die. And they said, you got a deal. So, the simple is he's going to prove their honesty to them. Now, he knows they're telling the truth. But he says, all right, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to keep one, and all the others can go back, and you can take grain with you. But in order to prove that you're telling me the truth, I want you to bring Benjamin back. Um, What do you think his motive is? Well, let's keep going. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. It has really hit them. They are feeling guilty. They've been carrying this guilt around for 20 years years or more, they, they have finally been confronted with the situation of losing a brother and the possibility of losing their life, and they, they finally just confess to each other, uh, you know, all this has come upon us because of what we did to Joseph, and who knows what happened to him as far as they are concerned. At the age of 15, a man named Robert Gough hit an elderly man in the head to steal money for his athletic uniform. He didn't intend to kill him, but the blow proved to be fatal. The police had no clues, but Robert knew that it was very unlikely he would be caught, but he was miserable. Finally, after 15 years of mental anguish, he confessed to the police. He was tried, given a relatively light prison sentence, and sent to prison. There, he trusted the Lord. He got saved. Some people said his sentence was too lenient. And here's what he said. I've been incarcerated in a cell for six months I've been incarcerated in my mind for 15 years. There is no comparison. The mind was far worse. That's where these boys are, these brothers. They have been in this anguish for 20 years, and now they finally just said, you know, we deserve what we get because of what we've done. All right. They confessed. Think up at verse 22. Then Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak with you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. So Reuben steps up and says, I told you so. Uh, I knew we shouldn't have done this. Verse 23, now they're having a conversation apparently in front of Joseph, but they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. What a scene! They are talking about their guilt of what they did to Joseph, not knowing they're in the presence of Joseph, because, well, it's 20 years before, they didn't expect him to be governor, and oh yeah! He spoke through an interpreter. He didn't speak their language. So they had no way of knowing. He was probably dressed in Egyptian garb and all kinds of things. They had no way of knowing that they're before Joseph. Now what happens next, I think, is a significant part of this story. Verse 24, He turned himself away from them and wept. Now that says to me, That he wasn't doing this to uh, retaliate in any way. He was very tender-hearted about all this. Verse 24 goes on to say, Then he returned to them again and talked with them. He took Simeon from them, bound him before their eyes. All right, let me pause here for just a second. What's going on? What is his motive? What is he... Doing Well, let me suggest that none of this is being done out of revenge. He's not retaliating. Uh, He's going to let nine of the ten go back with food. He just wants to do something to see Benjamin. And what he ultimately wants is to see his father. He wants to be reconciled to them. So it's not revenge that's motivating him, it's rent re- reconciliation. But the thing that really struck me as I studied this passage is he wept. He had a tender heart. Uh, there's a verse in Ephesians that says, Let all wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be tender hearted, forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Verses 31 and 32 of Ephesians chapter 4, some of, I think, most significant verses on the spiritual life in all of the New Testament. Keep your heart tender. Now think about what happened. He got sold into slavery by his brothers. He got lied against by Potiphar's wife. He got forgotten by the butler, the cupbearer. And through it all, he did not apparently get bitter, get resentful. Uh, He kept a tender heart. And at the same time, he's testing them. That's an interesting turn of events. So let me suggest that On the one hand he forgave them and on the other hand he clearly says I'm testing you so can you forgive somebody and then turn around and test them yeah you can yeah you can Uh, I think you should keep a tender heart and forgive but when somebody has done to you the gross injustice that was done to him do you just automatically trust them again, or do they have to earn the trust? You know? So, yeah, I think in certain situations, not forgiveness is not the issue. The issue is, uh, do you test them to see if they've learned? Now to say the same thing another way, God lets us suffer the consequences of our stupidity. Uh, if you get drunk and wreck your car and break your leg, God will forgive you. But he doesn't repair the car and he doesn't heal the leg instantaneously. He's going to let you hobble around with a cast for six weeks. Well, I think something like that is going on. That You forgive? There's no question. Keep a tender heart? Absolutely. But at the same time, He's testing them. He's not retaliating. He's he's, uh, testing them. All right, we're going to send you back. I want Benjamin to come down here. I want to be reconciled with all of my brothers, and they're not all here yet. So go get Benjamin. That, I think, is what is going on. So let's pick up the story in verse 25. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain to restore each man's money in his sack and give to them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. Did you get it? He planted the money in the satchels of grain and they didn't know it. Verse 27 but as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money there, it was, in the mouth of his sack. One commentator says that this, um, they were 250 miles up the road, and it would have taken them three weeks to make that journey. How he knew that is beyond me. I just thought it was fascinating. This didn't happen, apparently, the first night. At any rate, that's his opinion. They were well out of town when one of them discovered the money. Verse 28, And he said to his brothers, My money has been restored. There it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them And they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? They are thinking, now we have been screaming our heads off, we're honest, and now they're going to accuse us of stealing money. We have had it. And what they say is, now the Lord's in control. What is he doing to us? Why is he allowing this to happen? They were afraid. Verse 29, And they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them. Now, this is the report. Now, you've heard me explain the story, right? They're going to tell the story to their father. Listen very carefully and see if you can pick out any obvious differences to the story. Here's what it says. Um, Verse 30, they said, The men who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us as spies of the country. And we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, son of one father. One is no more. The youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man the lord of the country said to us, "By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take food for the famine of your household and be gone." How was their report? Not complete at all. Did they cover everything? No. no, they did not. They left out a few details. And they didn't say anything wrong. Uh, Everything they said was correct, it was accurate, except they sort of softened the whole thing. They didn't tell about being thrown in prison for three days. Uh, They didn't, uh, you know, go into detail about uh, Simeon, and they didn't tell about the money. They didn't say, and oh yeah... If we go back, we're in real trouble because that would have scared Jacob to death and he wouldn't have any of them gone back, probably. So uh, they shaved a little on the story. Verse 34. um, And bring your youngest brother back to me so I shall know that you are not spies, uh, that you are honest men. I will grant you your brother to you that you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in the sack. It wasn't just one. All ten had the money in their sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Now it says back up in verse 28 they were afraid. This is a different word. By this time, they're just near panic-stricken. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Just pause for a second. Have you ever said that? Everything's against me. You ever felt that way? If I had a dollar, for every time somebody has said that to me or something like it, uh, I could probably buy a new car. I mean, that is a very common uh, expression. Everything is against me. Uh, And that's the way Jacob felt. And, And he felt that way, as he spells out, because I lost Joseph, I've lost Simeon, and now you want to take Benjamin. What do you think he's going to say? Here's Benjamin, go... Not on your life. Read verse 37... Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. Let me take Benjamin. I'll bring him back. And if I don't, you can kill my two sons, your grandsons. (laughs) What kind of deal is that? (laughs) Tell a grandfather, if I don't bring your son back, you can kill your grandchildren. But he said, my son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him among along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. What he's saying is, if you take Benjamin and something were to happen to him, it would kill me. It would um, bring down my gray hair. With sorrow to the grave. He's saying, uh, No, I'm not gonna let you take Benjamin. Uh, The loss of Benjamin would mean my death. It would kill me if you took Benjamin and something happened to him. So, no, you cannot do that. All right, there's more to the story, but to hear that, you're gonna have to come back. That's the end of the chapter. And chapter 43 will give us the next episode in the life of Joseph. But it's very obvious this part of the story is about Joseph, especially at the beginning because of the way it is written. So let's just talk about what we can learn from Joseph who was treated so unjustly for so long. The sum of the story is this part of the story is that when, because of the famine, Jacob sent ten of his sons to Egypt for food without knowing it, they encountered Joseph, who kept Simeon until they brought Benjamin back to prove that they were telling the truth and could be trusted. But Jacob refused to let Benjamin go to Egypt. But like I said, while there are other figures involved, the story is about Joseph. And Joseph has been treated unjustly, and he's now in a position to even the score. How does he handle it? Well, let me make a couple of observations. Number one, he did not retaliate, there was no vengeance here. As a matter of fact, he remained tender hearted. He tested them, but he remained tender hearted. What was his motivation? Did he withhold his identity, put his brothers in prison for three days, and insist they bring Benjamin back out of revenge? There's no indication in this story that Joseph was being vindictive. His weeping indicates that he had a tender heart toward them. He returned the money they paid for the grain. Even his insistence on bringing Benjamin back was not retaliation or retribution It ultimately was an attempt at reconciliation. He was more anxious for reconciliation with his brothers than for vengeance. So I think lesson one is don't retaliate. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And if you read that passage in Romans, you get the impression that he'll do a much better job than you will, so keep your hands off and let him do it. What you need to do is keep a tender heart. Weep. Don't get a hard heart and retaliate. Keep a soft heart and be reconciled. As we've gone through the book of Genesis so far and there's more to go, I think it is interesting to see the character change in others as well as Joseph. Abram became Abraham. Jacob became Israel. Reuben violated his father's concubine and later showed great concern for both Joseph and his father. And the cocky Joseph becomes the wise statesman who forgives his brother and has a tender heart toward them. So I think in all of these cases, indicating by their name change, and in this case, indicated by his actions, all these people have grown. That's what's critical. Don't use the injustice done to you to trip you up or set you back, but rather grow through it all which is what Joseph did. Use it as an opportunity to grow. But let me make one more observation, and I think this is super important. The Lord used all the injustices done to Joseph to put him in a place where he could save the nation of Israel from starvation. Now, you only get that perspective as you see this story in the overall context of the total life of Joseph and even in the larger context of the book of Genesis. That is very, very important. And that is that the Lord used all these injustices. Can I repeat that? The Lord used all those injustices. Suppose the famine had come and they had not sold him into slavery. Would he have been in a position to save the nation from starvation? No. Suppose when he got to Egypt and was in Potiphar's house and was at the height of that position. Potiphar's wife had not lied against him, he'd still be in Potiphar's house. Would he be in a position to save the nation? No. Even the butler who forgot him was part of the overall scheme for him to be in a place so he could eventually interpret Pharaoh's dream. Had the butler gone straight back and talked immediately, Joseph might have gotten out of prison and never been in a position to talk to Pharaoh to be over all the food supply in Egypt. So, let me repeat. The Lord uses injustice in order to accomplish his will. Don't ever forget that. Dahan, speaking on this passage once said bowed down with sorrow these men uh, Joseph, uh, Jacob especially uh, and the others they were all bowed down with sorrow and he wrote Believe that God has a good reason for permitting your testing. And someday, maybe soon, we'll understand. And I thought that really put his finger on the pulse of what was going on. Believe that God has a good reason for permitting your testing, for permitting the injustice, You never know what's going to come after the injustice. You can make it a bigger mess by getting angry, getting bitter, getting resentful, retaliating, seeking vengeance, or you can say, you know, all things work together for good. All things are not good but all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Simply put, you never know what comes after the tragedy. So don't react to the tragedy until you see the big picture of what comes afterwards. Louis Pasteur made some of his greatest discoveries after a stroke that threatened to cut his life short. John Milton wrote some of his best poetry when he was blind. And Beethoven composed some of his most beautiful music after he was totally deaf. unbelievable. To those who love the Lord, all things work together for good. Father, give us that perspective. We are so often guilty of being short-sighted. We just see the immediate. Help us to see the eternal and to trust you to bring it to pass. In Jesus' name, amen.